Hello there, friends. This is episode 80 of the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. My name is Matt Bruff. I'm your host. I'm a pastor and an author, and I'm just thrilled that you have decided to listen in today. Today, I have a great conversation with Pastor Steph O'Brien, who is a pastor in Minneapolis. Uh, she has a book that came out a number of months ago called Stay Curious, How Questions and Doubts Can Save Your Faith. So we have this wide-ranging conversation about uh, how it's okay to doubt, how questions might be a good thing, and how this idea of curiosity uh, might actually be a key to having a more vibrant and alive faith and spirituality. So I know you're going to love this conversation. Uh, I also do want to just ask you, if you're enjoying this podcast, would you be able to go and leave a review on Apple Podcasts? Lots of people listen to the podcast through that uh, through that service. And uh, when you do leave a review or rating, it, it ends up making the podcast more visible so that others can find it. Uh, and feel free to share the podcast with your friends, uh, anyone who you think might be interested in these kinds of conversations, uh, or feel free to share on social media. Um, but for now, just uh, I hope you really enjoy this, and uh, I hope it's helpful for you. Today on the podcast, I have Stephanie Williams O'Brien. Uh, I'm just thrilled to have you here, Steph. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. Yeah. Uh, Steph has a new book out. Um, I guess it's actually not really that new by the time people are listening to this. It's been well, a yeah. couple of months now. Let's uh, just make it feel new as long as possible. I'm sure. Surprised. Okay. Brand new book that everybody <laughs> should go and new. read. Brand spanking new. Uh, it's called Stay Curious, How Questions and Doubts Can Save Your Faith. And uh, I listened to this book. I didn't. Uh, I bought the audiobook and listened to it. So it was really nice to hear you read That's it a lot yourself of hours. as well. That's yeah. a lot of hours of my voice. Well, and I thought it was really interesting because I'm used to hearing your podcast because you have, uh, well, right. you have a couple of podcasts now, right? Yeah, um, yep. And uh, stories, yep. So, and, and you've been on this show before with me um, and yeah. your co-host Joe Saxton was on uh, yeah. maybe 18 months ago or something like that. So it's nice to have you back. Yes, thank you for having me. But it was funny listening to the audiobook because um, I'm used to your podcast and, and you talk on your podcast really fast. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and so I, I often speed up audiobooks, but when I first started listening to yours, I just thought, no, I better keep this on regular speed. Yeah. And then I realized, no, you, you probably purposely had to slow down in your audiobook. So, so, I, it, so I increased it so that it was more like your podcast. <laughs> Okay, that's fantastic because I've actually kind of, I mean, I listened back to my, my audiobook to make sure there wasn't any mistakes. Well, to catch the mistakes because I produced right. it myself. But mm -hmm. um, I was wondering how it would come across because I was trying to intentionally be slower than my natural speaking voice. But I was right. like, I wonder if I sped up. But that's good to know because some people have teased me about it. They've said, oh, you did an audiobook. I'll have to slow it down. Yeah. No, no. They, I, I needed to speed it up because it's like, oh, I need to hear Steph at the regular pace here. That's fantastic. I can't wait to tell my husband that. It's great. <laughs> um, I, it's, it's a great book. So congratulations. And I really enjoyed listening to it. Um, I really want to zero in like right from the hop on a particular chapter that I thought was an amazing chapter. Oh, wow. uh, so that's chapter seven. Um, okay. which was when faith is what you fear. Mm. And you mentioned a couple of people in that chapter um, and a couple of books. And one of them was uh, Daniel Taylor and yeah. his book, The Myth of Certainty. So I'm yeah. just going to read you like a tiny bit that at least I transcribed it from the audio. So this might not be exactly okay. what you wrote. Yeah. Um, but it was from his book saying the demand for certainty inevitably creates its opposite, doubt. Doubt derives its strength from those who fear it most. And then you wrote, Taylor suggests that our attitude toward doubt and uncertainty is more important than eliminating doubt. I always felt that doubt was something to be feared, combated, squelched, or avoided at all costs. Doubt meant you weren't a good Christian, or worse, not a Christian at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I thought that was, that was really good. Um, but isn't Christianity or religion, or even life about finding answers. Like, isn't that what some people, people think it's all about? Yeah, exactly. I think that, I think that the, perhaps the motivation for many people to seek out faith or a faith structure, a faith system or religion is because they've got questions and they want answers. Um, but I wonder about how, once you get there, once you get to be a part of either a faith community or a system of faith, 
you realize that by very definition, faith means there is not certainty. And where certainty exists, faith is not needed. And so I think maybe there's nothing wrong with the motivation, but I think that's where uh, Daniel Taylor is going with that is that, so then your perspective is what's the most important about how you handle it. Because if your perspective is, oh, well, I came here for answers and I didn't find them, so see ya. What if it's, I came here for answers, but I found out (laughs) that questions are generative and they lead to more questions. And they don't mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that that I have all the answers. Maybe I find some answers. And perhaps I like that he called the book Myth of Certainty, but perhaps certainty is not something that can be found, but maybe assurance Mm -hmm. and feeling a sense of peace. But then what about the rest of the questions? I mean, how, how many lifetimes would you have to live to understand the God of the universe? So I think, yeah. I think regardless of, of the religion, honestly, actually, if you think about it, yeah. most concepts of deity is bigger than our human brains would able to be able to fully comprehend. Right, right. Um, like, I wonder if, um, I wonder if we've had, like, uh, we've, we've encouraged seekers, I think, in the Christian tradition. We've said, like, seekers, like, that's a, that's a good thing. Like, we, yeah. we want to be people who are seeking. But I feel like in the book, especially you, you, you're almost saying we've also said really seeking is only to find the right answer, right? And right. and and then you're challenging that to say, well, maybe that's actually not kind of not really what seeking is about. Well, perhaps um, perhaps the the seeking is the point. <laughs> perhaps <yeah. laughs> the what comes from that from that active seeking is formation and growth and expansion, as I call it in the book and a deeper understanding of yourself and God and others and the world. And that that's not uh, uh, something that ends with a period, but rather a dot, 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 you know, Hmm. and maybe there are seasons of life where it feels like it's settled. I think that that happens. There's, there's a six cycles of faith. I talk about the critical journey, which is the book that my friend Janet wrote um, which is so great in talking about how faith is more cyclical than it is, you know, linear. And so there are some seasons where it does feel like, you know, I've got a lot of peace. I feel like I've got the answers I need, but to expect that to be what, what is the long term, like that, that you've now arrived. I think that's what people say, right? They're seeker sensitive churches or seeker sensitive ministry. And the idea is when the seeker finds something, then they don't have to seek anymore. When I wonder if what you're finding is a relationship with Jesus and a relationship with God, then there's even more to seek that would come from that, that sense of assurance of a relationship with a being such as a Trinitarian God. Right. I kind of sense that there's sometimes like two different kinds of anxieties. Like people might be really anxious about, about what you're saying and what your, and what your book is about. People might be quite anxious about the fact that, oh my goodness, there's never ending questions and there's potentially not anything thing that's absolutely 100% certain, like that's maybe anxiety causing. But at the same time, I think you rightly point out that, um, that people who have kind of been indoctrinated, maybe not the right word, but kind of maybe even raised in this environment of everything is so airtight and certain, that itself is actually anxiety causing so that when doubts do inevitably come, it's how do we don't know how to deal with that. Right. Yeah. If you can comment on those kinds of anxieties that people might have on one side or the other. Totally. I, and I think of it as there's also these categories like intellectual anxiety, emotional anxiety, Mm -hmm. social anxiety around what other people are going to think if you don't have a sense of certainty about what you believe and don't feel sure about your position on this, that, or the other thing. I mean, we see that in politics too, right? Like (laughs) there's just all this anxiety around, do I not have this firm position? I'm like, well, these are very complex things. You know, and so um, I absolutely think that certainty, as a as Daniel Taylor calls it, the myth of it, is an anxiety lowering measure. I mean, it's something that people do to be able to lower the anxiety that they're feeling in all those categories. Um, I think the modernist worldview that kind of came before the postmodern perspective really threw, was. Uh, there's pros and cons to every worldview, of course, um, but one of the 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 stalwart parts of it was categorization and saying, okay, it's this or that. And here's where things fit into these frames. And essentially it's a way of setting up, you know, an understandings of, of complex things in order to make them simple enough to digest. And I totally get how that would lower, like you use the word anxiety. Another word I might use is cognitive dissonance. So this idea that there's dissonance in your mind between the fact that you don't know. And so then you want to I mean, psychologically speaking, we want to lower the anxiety of that by 
not having dissonance anymore. And mm. so, I mean, I absolutely think the anxiety is very real. Um, and I think we're continuing to be in settings where a lot of environmental factors are in- increasing anxiety for people. Um, but I, I do think that um, the faith system that people are raised in definitely can aid aid the anxiety to be more intense or can help lower the anxiety. So when a parent, you know, I've, I've got lots of church members with budding teenage students. And so I say to them, you know, well, they, they've said to me things like, well, what do I do? What do I tell my teenager if I don't know what I think about this position on this subject? And I say, why don't you, why don't you tell them you don't know? <laughs> and interestingly enough, after we discuss it, many of them say, that actually gives me a lot of peace that I know I can tell my teenager that I don't know. Yeah. And that peace is contagious. That sense of assurance that it's going to be okay, even though I don't have the answers, I think is really meaningful. And that when we say anxiety is, I mean, we call it toxic anxiety, right? Because it spreads. Well, so does that sense of assurance. And so I absolutely do think that family systems and of course, churches are family systems um, can either aid in that, in that anxiety and make it worse or can be an aid in lowering it and giving space for people to process. Yeah. And I think like, I kind of feel like people sometimes will feel like, yeah, if I can just be in an environment where the the answers are given to me, then, then I am going to, then I'm going to feel better. Um, Because I think there's just so much uncertainty out in the world that I think sometimes people see the church as like, okay, that's a safe place where I can just go and things have not really changed. Like the beliefs are, are set and yeah. um, and then I can just get away from the world and not uh, not have to worry too much and someone can just tell me the, the right answers. Well, I think right. that's, a, as, that's appealing to a lot of people. It is. And let's just have a, a pastor to pastor moment sure. in front of all these people. <laughs> it's appealing to be somebody who gives answers too. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, right. it's like, I'd love to have the magic wand to like answer people's deepest yearning questions in their life. But it's dangerous if I start doling out answers that I don't really know either. I mean, certainly giving my perspective or sharing some thoughts, but if someone's like, what should I do about this big decision in my life? I mean, how dangerous is it for me to tell them, well, I think you should do this, you know, certainly when we're talking about something that edges on the side of like deep, dark morality problems, but for the most part, those, that's not it. It's right. It's great. And it's confusing. And Mm -hmm. so I wonder about encouraging people like I do in the book to experiment with ways to move through some of that stuff and not get stuck. And, um, and I think that there is an ability to lower that anxiety if you keep moving. That's one of the things I, I think is, are true. And so I'm not, I'm not advocating for a lack of contemplation. I'm just saying that typically it's not contemplation that people are doing when they're standing still. It's being stuck. And so I wonder about moving. I mean, even thinking of contemplative practices that you're always talking about, um, it's an example of staying present to keep moving by doing a daily examine regularly. Right. That is one thing that could seriously help somebody who's really deconstructing. If they committed to do a daily examine, you know, for a month, that's it. I think they would be in a different place at the end of that. They would not have all the answers. They would not feel like supreme peace in their life, but they would be in a different spot than they were 30 days ago. And so I actually think the contemplative practices by the definition of the word practice means you're actively doing something is a way to not get stuck. Um, but yeah. there's certainly other ways as well. Yeah. And that's a big emphasis in, in your book too. Um, I want to come back to those um, sure. and like what practices might be helpful when we talk about the exam and too. Um, yeah. But I also want to talk about Jesus. Um, yeah. I like Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Jesus is, uh, he's great. I love Jesus. Yeah. Um, I love the guy. <laughs> but, I, but I wonder too, like there's a whole bunch of stuff that, and this is kind of a common thing that people know that Jesus uh, asked more questions than he gave answers and, and all that yeah. kind of thing. Um, so just on this sort of, um, this desire that people might have for this certainty and this, um, you know, maybe we want the church or we want spiritual leaders, yeah. uh, to provide those answers and then spiritual leaders or pastors like ourselves might be tempted to go ahead and try and give the answers. I do that too. I'm really good at making stuff up. So yeah, it's um, dangerous, like, isn't it? yeah, it's, it's, it, it get a lot of issues, dangerous, guys, but we know about them. We know about them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But it just seems like if Jesus is our model for how to engage with that, like, do we do that well? Like, is that? I mean, I think we need to hold out hope that we could. <laughs> okay, like, good. We could Thank do you. it well. I mean, yeah, I say that Jesus is, an, is a question man, not an answer man. And 
like you said, I do think that's relatively well known amongst people of faith. However, it's not, we don't live like that's true. Right. We don't live like it's true that Jesus are, you know, not, not only our model of living or like, wow, he was a good leader. We should be like him, but a being that we have an opportunity to be in a relationship with. Perhaps mm-hmm. when we ask Jesus in our relationship with Jesus, Jesus, give me the answer to what I should do. Maybe we should say, Jesus, what question should I be asking? Right. I, mean, I just think that would be a different way of dialogue and prayer. And I wonder how that would go, you know? And um, I think, I think that the, it, I'm not necessarily someone who would say all the answers can be summed up in the, in the gospels and Jesus has, you know, not at all, but there are some pretty strong themes that you see and certainly mystery and generative questions that lead to more questions and turning the question back on the question asker. And I mean, Jesus is just doing this stuff all the time, telling stories that have multiple meanings that are, you know, you could, you could come back to time and time again and have a depth of meaning that's different. Right. He certainly is. I mean, of course, he's also an Eastern thinker, unlike Paul, who has that Western Eastern thing. And we tend to in the West here really like Paul because he's so linear and um, direct. So there's cultural factors to that too. But if I find a lot of assurance. That's what I would use that word. So I'd find a lot of assurance in the idea that Jesus asked more questions than he gave answers. So maybe it's okay if I don't have all the answers. Yeah. And, and maybe it's okay to, to rest in questions too then. And, and like, how did, how did people respond when Jesus turned their questions back on them? Yeah. Um, A lot of times he was doing that with his opponents too. So that's certainly, you know, so they probably didn't respond all that well. Right. No, no. (laughs) If we followed through the end of the story, they didn't respond very well. They didn't. They didn't. Yeah. I think at one point in the book, I'm like, and this begins the plan to get him killed. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Good luck. So, but yeah, I, I think, uh, I think, what we can learn from things like the gospels is not how to be more like Peter or how not to be like Thomas, but like, how do we understand these different ways these human beings tried to relate to God incarnate? And what does that say about God? First of all, and then what does it say about us second? And I think what it says is we got a lot of chances. We're just like those disciples. We don't always get it. (laughs) We can ask Mm -hmm. questions forever. And, and then according to the book of Acts, we might still get used by God, even if we right. don't figure it all out all the time. Right, right. That's one of my favorite things in the Great Commission, actually, is um, the little line. Uh, they, you know, there's 11 of them that are there and then uh, they worshiped him and it's inclusive of all 11 of them and some mm-hmm. doubted. Some translations yeah. say, but some doubted, but I would, I would translate as and some doubted. So, yeah. so it's not like you have like some of them that are worshiping him. Right. And then some that are doubting. I think they're all worshiping him and possibly all of them are doubting, but, but at least some of those people who are worshiping Jesus, those 11 who are closest to him, who can actually see him are doubting. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we know that we know like that a couple of them did throughout the narrative. So I think that would be, that would be a good way of understanding that hermeneutic of what that's being said there. And I think, and I think also that to remember that we can't read the narrative as though it was written by Western people in 2000, 10 right. or 19. So, so the idea of, of um, things not being so dualistic would be accurate. Right. Right. Be he also, thing. he also commissioned all of them too. So he didn't just say like, yeah. Oh, well you four are doubting. So well, you, you can't be commissioned just yet. I wonder if trying to join in what God is doing in mission would help you work through some of those doubts. Now that'd be interesting. Yeah, and if Jesus yeah. were not to commission those people, then maybe that's the beginning of the end of staying curious right. in their life. Oh, I love that. That's great. Um, I also wanted to bring up Greg Boyd's book, uh, Benefit yeah. of the Doubt. My neighbor, uh, Greg, here. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's from your, yeah. is he from Minneapolis? Yeah, yeah, well, technically St. Paul, but, you know, Twin Cities. Okay. So his church is just a few miles from mine. Oh, awesome. Because um, mm-hmm. you, brought, you brought up his book in that, in that wonderful chapter seven, um, mm-hmm. Breaking the Idol of Certainty. Is of course, the chapter seven is your book. favorite one, Matthew. That's hilarious. Isn't that great? Yeah, I didn't even think of that. It's the number of completion. You just love it's it. Good. Um, you, uh, you wrote, uh, I think you were paraphrasing him, and you said uh, people have confused saved by faith with saved by feeling certain about particular beliefs. Mm-hmm. Intellectual yeah. assent is not equivalent to faith. Yeah. I thought that's brilliant. I love that he uses the phrase, um, the arrogance of rightness. Oh, wow. And uh, I just think that's really a powerful, I I quote him all the time because I'm just like, the temptation to have the arrogance of rightness goes back to what we were saying about the pastors want the answers, but we all do, right? We all want to be able to say, I've got it right, you've got it wrong. And 
in what way do we think that of all the perspectives in the world, we can know for sure that we're not wrong in a shadow of a doubt. I mean, I just think, you know, that's why I use that phrase later in the book, beyond the shadow of doubt, because it's the, the idea that it's a shadow means it's always negative when actually doubting that you might be completely certain is a way to stay humble, to say, well, I, here's what I really think. I, it, whether it's a political position or a theological position, I really think this is true. Of course, I really think that women are called to all roles in the church. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing my job. But what if I'm wrong? Do I think that the hermeneutic I have for my understanding of that theology is that Jesus Jesus is still going to give me another chance if I were to have that wrong? That just sounds crazy for a female pastor to say, what if I have that wrong? But you've got, you've got to leave room for misunderstanding. And I'm sure I have something wrong. And so how can we hold that? And I just love that he talks about it like that. And how if you don't hold that sense of humility, then you will start to worship certainty instead of being a person who worships through faith. I just think he's brilliant in the way he, and I mean, that whole book is brilliant and um, totally recommend it for people, but it's thick. He's a, he's a theologian's theologian. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I also really liked, uh, it seemed in that section, you were kind of emphasizing sort of trying to emphasize this, the relationship with Jesus and sort of, yeah. um, well, what does it actually mean for Jesus to be Lord or what does it mean for Jesus? I, I don't think you use this language, but what does it mean for Jesus to be friend um, to be or, our friend and our leader. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that that's, it's sort of weird to, to put the right and wrong into that equation. Yeah. Like I wouldn't say, well, you know, I'm a hundred percent right about what it means to be in relationship with my wife. Oh yeah. And, and no. you're wrong about it. Right. <laughs> like that's just weird. <laughs> um, yeah. So it just seems like if we're going to put relationship into the conversation that it's strange to have this sort of, Right. Um, some sort of bar that people are trying to meet on their yeah, but, intellectual but, scale. But you and rightness. I might have a conversation about how we can be better spouses to our partners. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that would be really helpful. But at the end right. of the day, you don't know what it's like to be in my marriage and right. I don't know what it's like to be in yours. And so while right. friends can help each other with their relationships to say, Matthew, listen, I know we just talked for a little while about this thing with your wife, but you definitely need to do this or you're wrong. That would be crazy. Right. Like that would just be... I mean, maybe you could do that. People might do something like that. But that's now, are we saying be. are we saying that like then then nothing's ever nothing's ever wrong? Like, is that uh, see? I think that's the that's what everybody kind of goes to, right? It's everyone like, worries okay. about that, right? So then, yeah. So then, like, nothing's the only thing that we know for sure for certain is that nothing is for certain. Like, yeah, and I get that, and that's maybe what I mean by a sense of assurance. So, like, yeah. I don't know for sure that I'm being the best wife that I could be to my husband. We've only been doing this thing for a couple of years, and. We got married in our thirties. And so we, we were doing the independent thing for a long time, but I feel really assured that we love each other and that we're working towards how we can do life and relationship better. And that I feel pretty assured as well that we're, we're committed to that and we really want to try, but I'm also assured that we're going to make mistakes. (laughs) So, you know, I think that there's, I think that I believe that certainty and truth are a thing. It's what I'm questioning and what I'm pushing is, the arrogance of any one human to claim that they have it all. Right. Which is different, you know, to say all truth is God's truth and truth is, truth is a real thing is different than saying, so then I have a truth. My truth is for sure the right truth. And your truth is for sure that it's the, it's the humility to say, this is the truth I've come to. I, I really dislike when people use the phrase, my truth. I know that's very common right now, right. but what, what about saying, this is the truth I've come to at this point in my life. Like I'm living out of this truth. And I might find out later that I think something different, but of course there is a sense of I'm trying to stand on something that I think is true, but that's what faith means, right? That I'm having faith that this is true. So I definitely think that it's a little bit of a lazy thing for people to say, okay, so then nothing can be certain. It's like, no, there is, there are things that are true, but human beings, brains being able to comprehend all of it and become to that sense of certainty is not one of them. And I don't think would be, I think is pretty couched culturally and pretty, you know, the expectations of that is very, very, very much a construct that people have been living under for a long time in different cultures in different ways, I think. Hmm. Uh, does this connect to maybe to, uh, you talk a bunch about the the mystery of God. Does yeah. Does connect to that? I think it does. Yeah, absolutely. I think how could we worship a being that we can fully understand? Like, would that being be worthy of our worship? 
And you just see the theme of the mystery of God throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, throughout church history. Um, I find the North American, both, both, um, both the Protestant and Catholic church, both the mainline and evangelical church in a really weird spot of like stiff arming the idea of mystery more than they ever have. Um, are there, are there people who are really embracing that within the Catholic church? Sure. And Protestant church. Sure. But generally speaking, that is not what you hear coming from any of these summits of leaders and gatherings. Um, and certainly not, I mean, at all. I mean, the Catholic church is the, they're, they're the history of Christian mysticism. And you'd think that there was no way anything could be a mystery. And I think, um, and I hold that same criticism to my spiritual background. And so I just, I find it to be so interesting. So one of the things I often talk to my congregation about is how easy it is for me to talk about things that are supernatural and mysterious to people who aren't Christians and how hard it is to talk about that with Christians. Christians are just the weirdest, and I'm making a huge generalization, but Christians are just the weirdest about stuff that doesn't make sense. And I'm like, we're supposed to be the weird people, the ones that are like, well, I don't know, everyone's tongues were on fire and they started speaking language. Like, come on, we're the people with the supernatural weird stuff. And, and I understand that people are um, feeling uh, fearful, I think is the right yeah. word, fearful and anxious about new age, this and that. And I totally yeah. get it, but people don't, those other worldviews don't get to own things like meditation. They don't get to own like holding the mystery of the divine. They don't get to like, that's, it's not like it's not, they can't have that too, but like the idea that anything that's not clearly, you know, got a stamp of approval by somebody couldn't be a way to engage the divine is very interesting to me. This, this way that things have gone. I I certainly grew up in a space that was like, Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. Don't worry about the Holy Spirit doing weird stuff. We're mm. just not going to talk about it. Right. And that has not been my experience with once I became open to the Holy Spirit. That's not been my experience as an adult. And so um, right. yeah. I'm loving talking to people who aren't people of faith about it because they're like, ooh, interesting. Let's talk about it. Right. Right. They want to know more. Um, yeah. I, I can't remember who it was that talked about the preacher's task is to make the familiar strange. I don't know if mm. you've heard that. Have you heard that before? No, but that's a really great way to put it. I've yeah. heard people talk about the like making the comfortable uncomfortable. And the- yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's an interesting way to make the familiar strange. Yeah, and they're talking about the text that most people in churches who are who are in churches listening to preaching yeah. have a familiar, familiarity with the text. Right. For the most part. Yeah. And, and so it seems like you're reading a text and it's reasonable mm-hmm. because you've grown up with it and you've been yeah. taught this as a reasonable thing. And we have all these explanations that make things right. reasonable. Um, but it seems like sometimes the preacher's task is to say, well, this is like, this is totally ridiculous. Like, I agree. Or, or this is really bizarre. Um, like Pentecost, like you just said, like (laughs) tongues of fire and people start speaking in other languages. That's really freaky. Yeah. that's. I don't really, I don't really actually want that to happen in my, in my church. Like that would, I don't understand all that. I don't understand that, but it's Um, in the Bible. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, no, I love that. I think of things like one of the things I often do in my preaching is try to help people understand the way that first century people would have thought about the ancient Near Eastern narratives about the gods. And so like when when Jesus or Paul or anyone is talking about God wanting to have a relationship with you, that's out of love and not out of like, you need to please God. Or the gods are angry. The gods are going to smoosh you. The gods are going to eat you in their soup. Like this is what these folks were swimming in. This is what they yeah. had heard. And so when Yahweh comes to the forefront and the people of God are sharing who Yahweh is, it would have been mind blowing. Like it just would have been like, that's not who gods are. So this God can't be this way. And I just, we are lost on that, right? It feels familiar instead of strange. And I right. think, I, I think that's great. I love that phrase. Let us know. So, so first of all, you kind of talk about Christian mysticism a little bit in the in the book as well. Um, mm-hmm. But is there like are there ways that other than having like a podcast called Spirituality for Ordinary People, <laughs> yeah. um, is, are there ways that we can uh, reclaim Christian mysticism? That's a good question. I do think what you what you kind of expose yourself to, like you just suggested about the podcast, like you're being formed by that stuff. Like I hate to right. think about that. I hate to think about how much everything that's coming in to my, you know, there's so much information overload is forming us, but, um, but on the flip side, something very small could really help, help form you, you know? 
And so I think there's, I mean, there's a number of different ways. I think if people do have any sense of folks who they see as open to God's mystery and like just even trying to see if you can get together with them and ask them questions, like the curiosity leads to an understanding. I think that's huge. I know this isn't possible for everybody, but I've had a relationship with my spiritual director for probably 11 years, almost 12 years now. And I know everybody can't find that in their context, but some people probably don't realize how close it is to them. Um, the opportunity on both the, I mean, it's roots are in the Catholic church, but there's many people now trained as Protestant um, spiritual directors. And that's really helped me create a space in my life for the mysterious space and to be able to ask questions and to think about that. And she guides me through that. So that really helps. But I think it's just like anything else in life. If you don't, if you don't see it as something that's valuable enough to put in your calendar or to put into your earbuds or to pick up that book, it's not going to become a part of your life, you know? And um, so I don't necessarily have a list of books necessarily or anything like that. I mean, a Google search of Christian mystics would, would lead you down an interesting rabbit hole, <laughs> you know? Um, and, but I mean, it's straight out of the Catholic catechism, like the mystery of God and the Trinity is the greatest mystery. And like, yeah, yeah of course it is. It's nuts. Come on. Okay, this might seem totally out of left field. Um, I was uh, I was preparing for a presentation and um, this morning, and somehow that led me to re- reading the Directory of Public Worship from the Church of Scotland. This is like oh, hundreds of years old, right? Yeah. And I I I think that I might really have, random. I think I might yeah. I, it's it's going somewhere. Um, I think I might have read it in seminary um, for some reason, but I, w- I was look I was trying to look at like historically, like what has the church done in terms of church planting? Like I went to some of our historic documents, and for yeah. some reason I ended up on that document, which really has nothing to do with church planting. And I was really struck by most of the points that that directory is trying to make. It's trying to say that worship, and and it's got some specific like these are things that should happen in worship, which are fairly antiquated in what we might yeah. say today, but the th- whole theological thrust of the document is to, is to talk about how worship is primarily an encounter yeah. with the living God. And that the whole point of doing these things is because God shows up in a different kind of way in people's lives. When you gather together for public worship together. Yeah. Um, the, and, and it makes a point of saying God is omnipresent. God's everywhere. Like it's not like God is you're, you're doing anything that's causing something that isn't already normally present Um, and God will show up in your personal life. It says that as well. And then it talks about how, okay, but this document is about how, when we come together for public worship, there's this encounter with the living God. And, and that's what it is about. It's like, wow, this is like Scottish Presbyterianism. Really? That's amazing. I imagine they were probably thinking about, you know, isn't it the, like the, you know, Irish and the Scots that talked about the thin place a lot and this idea that, that there's certain places where the the heaven and earth or the the divine and the supernatural and the earthly are thin. Right. Um, and I think to that point, right, you can have a thin place by yourself and a mountain or a sunset or in your bedroom or in your prayer closet. But like the idea that people are coming together to seek God together is like nearly like formulaic for a thin right. space, I think would, would, that would line up in my understanding of scripture too. Mm-hmm. I think that yeah. takes a, a high level of trust for, for leaders, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I know for me, like, again, maybe this is getting back to like our temptation to give answers. This is, yeah. this is a good, uh, this is a good counseling session. You're providing your stuff. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> but, uh, but I, like, I'm tempted to like do really great exegesis of the text and then, and then, and then work really hard on that sermon so that I'm, mm-hmm. you know, doing a good job as a pastor. Yeah. Um, but it takes a lot more like, and I can just rely on that because I've, I've been a pastor for a long time yeah. and have those skills and, but it's a lot harder to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to show up powerfully in people's lives. And my job is to create a space for that, create a space and sometimes get out of the way and, mm-hmm. And, and what does that look like? That's, that's, I think, a lot harder to, to figure out and a lot harder to sort of let go that, I mean, how do you know, like, I, I haven't seen the tongues of fire show up yet. So like, how do you know when, uh, mm-hmm. when that's happening in, in people's yeah. lives without kind of conversation and, and occasion to do that? It, it's harder, I think. It is harder. Yeah. And there's some ways to do that, but they're very contextual to people's yeah. context too. Yeah. And 
And certainly they don't need to be in a gathering of a public space. They could be a sure. personal space or a social space of a few people too. And that, um, but, but yeah, if you don't put it in your life, it's not going to happen. I even tell people, look, I know the Devo thing. I don't know what everyone's spiritual background, but there was like the quiet time and the Devos and the, you know, you see people just rolling their eyes about some of these Christian faith expectations and things that felt rote. And I totally get it. But while, while that, there were some things that were perhaps um, placed upon people as expectations that were set by other people. I still want to say to people, okay, but if you're asking questions about God and you're feeling very perplexed, this is the most important thing you could discuss in your life. So, and, and process in your life. So where in your life are you going to do that? I understand if you can't go to church, I, I get that. I do. But, but if you just say, okay, well, I can't go to church because that's hard for me right now. And so I'm going to go ask my questions. So I, my question to people is, so where and when, how are you going to do that? Because the, the, the thing that gets me about the nuns and the duns, we're always talking about that, right? The people that say that they're done with church or done with organized religion and put none for their religious understanding. And I, I, I'm okay with people who say, I've got to make a different decision. But the people, which I find to be many, who kind of fade into some other reality instead of make an intentional move yeah. towards something, that's where I'm going to challenge that and say, hey, look, I'm okay with disagreeing. I'm okay with you leaving Christianity. There's feelings I might have about that, right? As a person who believes in Jesus, but I'm okay with you as a person. I'm going to love you anyway, but I'm going to challenge you if you tell me you kind of accidentally became like spiritual, but not religious. Like, tell me how you did that, what your choices were, how you're still pursuing that. Like, I, I don't know. It's just like anything else in life. And if you're not, then I'll say, so then it must not be that important. And then I guess we could come to that conclusion in a conversation. But, you know, I, I just would challenge people like to say, if you're, if you're fading out, that's one thing. If you're making choices to, to grow and expand and that leads you away from a faith tradition or sh- usually like a shift from one part of, of Christianity to the other or something, great. But, but I don't see most people choosing that as an intentional like quest. Right. Do you think there's people who are like, um, they've got like, they've hit the wall with a question potentially? Yeah. Like, yeah. Or with, so, with I mean, doubt? Like, or and like then, the problem, and then the it's just sort of a big one, right? Yeah, but That's but their great. response seems to be not to necessarily further engage with that. It's sort of like, well, I didn't get a satisfactory answer on the first or yep. second or tenth go around um, yep. from this from from the from the one thing I thought I had access to. I don't I don't have I didn't get a satisfactory answer, so I'm done with all religion. Yeah, and but I they haven't I necessarily think- asked a broader question is that maybe i think so but even that even that's a little more intentional than what i often see happen okay <laughs> I feel it's like i feel it's like oh i hit this i don't understand how god can be loving and this happened and then i kind of stopped doing spiritual things because that was really angsty and i felt a lot of cognitive dissonance okay cool so then where are you at now well it's been a few years now and i have this conversation a lot with people who mm. The typical, like when you have kids, you're like, oh crap. So then how are we going to talk about this with them? I didn't reconstruct my faith when I deconstructed it. You know, I, I think of it as that, you know, so, so in the book, I use that illustration of Legos. I love Legos and how like, you know, building your worldview from like zero to 18 is like having building a Lego tower blindfolded with your non-dominant hand. And with people putting bricks on there for you halfway through. Right. And so, of course, that's going to be a not-so-sturdy structure by the time you get to 18, 20, and you start looking at it, you're like, this doesn't hold up. And so then you start picking it apart, which we often call de- deconstruction or disorientation. And then you look at your little green Lego board, and you're like, oh, man, like there's not a lot of bricks on here. And then I just think a lot of people are like, oh, this is a lot. And they just shove that, metaphorically speaking, to the corner of their shelf and say, I'm gonna deal with that later. And then don't pick that back up again until Mm. there's a need to. And to be honest, it doesn't work like that either. Indecision is still a decision. So that, that's that um, Lego tower to fit the analogy starts getting built back up again, just unintentionally again. And because you have to live off of some sense of understanding of the world. And so I just want to encourage people like that is a important deconstruction and reconstruction is maybe one of the most important things you can do in your understanding of the world and God and yourself and other people and the church. So then do it, <laughs> like actually do it, you know? And, and if you have to have a little deconstruction party for a while, that's fine. Yeah. But you know, I, I heard Richard Rohr say on a podcast recently, which, you know, everybody loves him right now and that's great. But he said, listen, deconstruction is an important thing, but don't stay there. That's, that's what sophomores do. That's what he said. 
That's what sophomores do. It's like, I don't even totally know what you mean by that, but I get it. And he's just said, he goes, I'm a reconstructionist and I just want people to do that. And I'm with him. I'm like, I might come to different conclusions than he does, but I'm just saying, yeah, this is the most important thing. Like, don't, don't just let it become passive or apathetic. And there's just a fine line between cynicism and apathy. And I just think it's, I do like the idea of, uh, that you're saying that like people don't necessarily realize that something, maybe something else is being built. Like, Oh yeah. Totally. It's not what they really would want. Totally. Um, like, like now I've got and the Lego. I love Lego too. So that's good. And I remember yeah. that from the book too, but I'm, I'm kind of picturing someone like getting like oh, two or three Lego pieces and going, yeah, this is really hard to deal with and like tossing them. Yeah. But then they just land in the Lego pile and are actually building up to something that they're not even thinking about, you know? Like, yeah, you're standing on top of like a rubble pile instead like, of like... Oh, shoot, this is a lot pile. less sturdy than if we'd intentionally built something. And then you wonder yeah. why they slip out from under your feet when something yeah. terrible happens. And, oh, that's really know. good. And I just think like when I think of my own reconstruction, I think of, if to take the Lego analogy, I took nearly all the bricks off and then I started putting some back on and a lot of them just didn't go back on. Right. Like they're still here. They're kind of like out there. I might pick them up and look at them sometime, but they didn't go back on the foundation of my understanding of the world. They're just hmm. intentionally like around and I didn't put them, lock them in because I just don't hmm. know that that some of them are that important. I've come to a place of the uh, far side of complexity. Some people call it yeah. where it's like, I still think these are important. They're complex. I just don't know that I'm going to have certainty about this before I, you know, get my chance to see Jesus face to face. So I don't know. Is that okay? I think it needs to be, or we're never going to feel that sense of peace that passes the the lack of, of when we have anxiety, at least, you know? Yeah. Um, is that like, sorry, you're now talking about your own deconstruction and reconstruction. Yeah. Is that part of what led to wanting to write this? I think so. I think um, certainly it's not a memoir, but I think my own experience coupled with the fact that my first ministry um, setting was college ministry. And so mm. certainly that's right in the, the heart of it and the thick of it, but I don't think deconstruction and reconstruction is, um, you know, just, just always in the college area. I think that it's cyclical, like I was saying, and you go through different seasons and different things. You, you do end up putting things on that board and you got to take them back off. And it's a, it's an ongoing process. And there's certain seasons where there's more deconstruction and certain where there's more reconstruction. And I've seen that from the college students now onto you know, people that are, are in their thirties, forties, fifties. And then, I mean, uh, empty nester seasons for people can be real deconstruction, yeah. reconstruction times, and that's okay. And I know it's anxiety producing, so you need other people with you, but that's maybe the best thing you can do as long as you do it intentionally and think about it and feel the, the freedom to keep growing as a person and take some and stuff off of there. It sounds like you would say that the way to, the way to do some of that or to continue on that, if, if, if you're, if you're really thinking, yeah, I do want to do that. I, I do want to explore and I want to try again with my faith. Um, it sounds like you're saying that the a way to do that is through practices, right? Is that- I think so. Yeah. And I mean, going to a worship service is a practice. So, sure. but, but that's not the only one. And I think that's kind of where some people get stuck is like, so then does that mean I need to go back to church? And I might say, there might be a few other things you might try before you do that. And right. that's what I kind of have in that part two of the book. And yeah, you have a bunch from. of things in the book uh, that people can try. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a list of things to check off. It's more like, here's some ideas. And then almost all of them, I end with the phrase, like find a conversation partner to talk about it with. And, you know, right. and then I mentioned like considering a therapist or a spiritual director like 20 times, but um, <laughs> anything that's, I, I use the phrase a process oriented relationship. So when we look at studies of people wrestling through faith and questions, people who come out on the other end, not necessarily, well, definitely not where they started, but people who come out the other end feeling like an integrated, healthy adult had process-oriented relationships. So that looks like a coach, a mentor, a small group, a prayer partner, call it what you need to, I don't know, but find someone to talk to about it. And maybe that's the first step for someone who is really saying, okay, I, I feel like I did get to a spot where I push the Lego board, the deconstructed board to the side. <laughs> Maybe the first step is finding one person that you feel like you could are safe person to talk to about it. Yeah. Um, and I've been that person for many people and I know who those people were for me. And that's probably why I wrote the book because of being mm. that person and how much I appreciated that people trusted me with that. And, um, 
trusting me not to say, all you need to do is come to my church. Cause that's not what I said. <laughs> you know, um, some of them did end up coming, but I think that wasn't the point at all. It was, who do you trust enough to, I mean, it's, it's burying your soul. That's really hard. And so in a lot of ways, I say the book is a result of thousands of conversations, you know, right. that I had with people who helped me and then vice versa. So I was going to ask whether there are certain practices that you think are most helpful for people who are troubled by their doubt. Um, mm. But it kind of sounds like you're saying, yeah, you can probably try whatever, um, but talk with yeah. somebody like I'd like have somebody that you can talk with is, is sort of the priority. Yeah. And when I say someone you can trust um, somebody who will listen to you process and not try to give you all the answers all the time, but might right. offer some suggestions of what to try. So I think like what to try is different than here's your answer. Right. And that's yeah. usually how I would end those conversations with people is like, okay, so we talked about a lot today. What are you going to try? And mm-hmm. that book, the book has all these ideas, but I think there could be the experiment could be designed. I use the word experiments because I think practices end up being rhythms that you do as regularly as possible and you might need to change those up. But experiments are like, I'm going to try this practice on for size and see what it does, you know? And there's no, there's no such thing as a failed experiment except one that you don't do. So (laughs) try it. You might learn a lot and it might be because it was terrible and you shouldn't like it, you know? Right. I was just thinking that. um, Go ahead. I was just thinking if, you know, if somebody did say, Oh, I'm going to do a daily examine. Um, for a month and they get like 20 days in and they're thinking this hasn't done anything for me. I I would imagine like something else is going to come up. Like it's going to lead to something else. Like I would just, you've got to trust that process of working through spiritual practices and then see, see what it leads to. And, and I like the focus on learning. Like it's not, it's not a failure. It's what it's then what do you, what's that second reflection you do to figure out, well, what did I learn and where is this leading me now? Yeah, you've got to have the feedback loop for yourself or with other people to talk about it for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's what anybody would do if they were doing a scientific experiment, right? There's right. absolutely no point in doing a scientific experiment if you don't examine the results with somebody and right. just and then say, now where do we go from here? What's next? So yeah, the examine would be one. Um, I think any sort of space of kind of trying to get, think of people finding space in nature or other places to say, okay, mystery of God, you know, what is this? And um, sometimes it's even just an experiment with, you know, I've, I've encouraged people think about the story of Nicodemus and how he comes to Jesus with all these questions and he leaves without answering with his questions, like kind of answered, but he still clearly doesn't know. And I just, I think that he started to test out the idea of whether or not he could trust Jesus. Cause in that, in that mm-hmm. passage in John three, Jesus says, believe if you don't believe, you know, but it's pistuio, which actually means trust. And so he's actually, he's asking Nicodemus to consider trusting him, even though he doesn't have all the answers. Nicodemus doesn't have all the answers. Like, mm-hmm. can Nicodemus trust the person who suggests he has all the answers, even if it means Nicodemus won't ever have all the answers? Mm-hmm. And we know the story. We know that he does choose to end up trusting Jesus and um, enough to be one of the two people taking him down from the cross, you know, and um, people think that he was an early church leader and probably was martyred. So, he came to a place of trust, but I mean, I'm pretty sure that guy died with all his, without all his questions answered because he was an intellectual. Of course he didn't have all the answers. You know, that would have been the end of his life right there. If you're an intellectual person, I say this to people all the time too. I'm sorry this is happening to you. It's because you're smart. Like it's because you think, and that's not bad, you know? (laughs) So if you were, if you were the kind of person that accepted pad answers, which Nicodemus clearly isn't, he's like, this doesn't make sense, you know? And Jesus, I think, is intentionally trying to blow Nicodemus's mind by talking about the metaphor of being spiritually reborn. He's like, look, look, Nick, you can come to me with your intellectualism and I'll take you that and I will raise you really complex metaphor that will blow your mind. Good luck. See ya. You know, right. I think because he knew him and he was trying to push him like you're, you're Israel's teacher, don't you know? Like, right. I think he was, I don't think he was being rude. I think he was like, I got this guy's number. <laughs> like, I know yeah. how to get him going you better go find these things. And so I, I think Nicodemus, that's a great example of the people who struggle with doubt. Like he was doubting that Jesus was really from God and that he was the Messiah. And he, he came to a place of trust. And I think, what if you, what if it was an experiment with, I'm going to try to trust the person of Jesus for 30 days. And I don't know what that means, but I'm going to try. So what would that mean tomorrow? I don't know, but maybe it's trying to talk to him, see what happens. Like, I, mm. <laughs> like yeah. not, not, 
I'm going to try to get Jesus to be the one that gives me all the answers in 30 days. What if you tried to trust that relationship maybe again or for the first time and just see, see what happens. Right. So, I mean, I recognize that that could be really risky. Um, yeah. I think a could lot of be. people are afraid that if they do that, they're going to overturn a rock that has nothing underneath it. But yeah. statistically, and what I've noticed is that if people actually pursue that, most of the time people come to what they would describe as a more vibrant version of their faith or a, a shifted version, but that is more meaningful for them. Yeah. And, and I think like, I think it's that taking an intentional step and actually, actually working on it. Right. So yeah. um, I think you mentioned Thomas and Peter and kind of played them off against one another a little bit earlier. And um, that's one of my favorites to Jesus is raised from the dead appears to his disciples. Thomas is not with them. Actually, they were all doubting. Right. But Jesus appeared oh, to them, there. right? And yeah. so then when right. Thomas when Thomas is doubting, he just doesn't believe the other disciples. It's not like he... Um, right. But he still stays in community with them. Yeah, he gets a pretty just, lame nickname. Right? So it's kind of interesting. Like a week later, Jesus shows up again, and he actually gives Thomas what he needs, right? So Thomas right. says, like, you know, unless the... It's like I can feel the nail marks with my hands. Yeah. yeah um, right. I won't believe. And then Jesus shows up and says, oh, okay, here, here you go. But it's kind of like right. someone saying, well, unless I have my own encounter with Jesus, I'm going to not believe. So put yourself in a position to have an encounter with Jesus then. Yeah. So maybe right. we should call him Persistent Thomas instead of Doubting Thomas. Yeah. Because he ends up staying in community and, you know, it's yeah. kind of like in saying that he's almost uttering a prayer saying to Jesus, like, I need, I need to experience you in totally. order for my faith to be bolstered. Well, great. Like, go pray yeah. that prayer then. Jesus, I need to experience you to have my faith uh, assured. Yeah. Um, and same with uh, the help my unbelief prayer that the father prays, you know. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. He's like, I believe, actually, help my unbelief. So, I mean, he's saying, I trust, I trust, actually, help me trust, you know. And you be in both of those places at the same time. Yeah, man, we are human beings. We are very complex. I can feel like a certain amount of trust one minute and then complete doubt the next. And like, we don't want to be more simple than that. Then we wouldn't be humans. We'd be other mammals, you know. So it's just... It's it's hard to be a human. That's the reality. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pull that out of the interview and then yeah. put that at the lead Quote. of the podcast. Quote. It's so, hard so. to be a human. <laughs> Steph O'Brien. Yeah. yeah. Uh, All the wisdom. Yeah. Uh, this has been a really great conversation. Where can people, what's the best place for people to find you online? Is it your website? Is that... Yeah, pastorchef.com has got links to everything. Um, staycuriousmedia.com is where I have links to buy the book, but also links to the Stay Curious podcasts. Um, of course you can find that anywhere you get podcasts. And then, um, the, there's a little spot where I'm, when I'm going kind of on touring around and if I'm going to be in someone's neighborhood, you can see that on that website too. Um, my, my handle on everything is just pastor Steph. So on all the things. So if pastor Steph is not me on something on social media, then that's not, then I'm not on that social media. (laughs) So Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. So, um, that I love interacting with people online too. Awesome. Thanks so much for this today, Steph. Yeah, totally. It's been a pleasure. Okay, take care. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. Again, please go and leave a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts. That helps the show be more visible so that other listeners can find it. Feel free as well to share the episode with anyone who you think might benefit from it or just share on social media. Uh, There'll be another episode coming out soon and I hope you will listen in again.